Welcome to Leven and Marcelo's Criminology Podcast, a podcast hosted by Marcelo Aevi from the University of Lausanne, Switzerland, and Leven Powers from Ghent University, Belgium. We aim to draw a map of the state of criminology across Europe through the worlds of contemporary criminologists. How is criminology defined and taught? Which are the main lines of research? Which are the main schools of thought in each country? These and many other questions are answered here by fellow researchers who share their vision on the development of criminology in their countries from its beginnings to the second decade of the 21st century. If you want to know and compare their stories, stay tuned. Today we are interviewing Professor Henrik Tam. Henrik Tam is Professor Emeritus at the University of Stockholm and a former president of the European Society of Criminology. His research interests comprise many areas, among others criminal policy, its development and determinants, including research on the crime victim, narcotic drugs policy and public attitudes to punishment. This interview was conducted on 11 March 2022. Welcome, uh, Professor Henrik Tam. Um, thank you for. Um, being here with us today, you know, the goal of our um, podcast project is to retrace the history of criminology and criminological research in, in every country. And we want to create a collective memory of, of criminology. Um, you know that uh, countries are extremely different and sometimes similar in terms of their history of, of criminological thoughts and, and researches, the number of schools in, in criminology. And what we are trying to do in all our interviews we are conducting is to, to recreate some kind of collective memory um, because European criminology is so diverse and we don't want these uh, diverse ideas to get lost in the history of time. So therefore, um, we try to conduct several um, key persons for each and every country. And um, well, today we are actually um, conducting the first interview with colleagues in, in Sweden. We have already done interviews in, in other countries. And so our project is really different um, from the um, oral history project, which more or less looks towards the history of European criminology. We are looking at criminology in different countries and we have selected a couple of uh, topics which are recurrent in each and every interview. So it's about um, the definition of criminology in, in uh, your country, the institutionalization of criminology, how criminology is being taught, uh, the kinds of research topics which are um, paramount, the key challenges um, in criminology, especially, and uh, this is very important, also the influence that criminologists have or do not have on uh, policy, uh, social policy, criminal policy, and finally the, the influence of criminology as a discipline. So these topics are, are 
basically the, the input and we try to um, get an idea of how um, different countries can be posited towards these different uh, topics. So I uh, would like to um, give you the floor. Maybe we can start by the, asking the general question about the, the way criminology is seen in, in Sweden in general. Uh, I know it has a long tradition, but um, we are of course curious to hear more of the details from uh, you. Um, so let's start and please go ahead. Right, then let me define present-day Swedish criminology in, with three concepts. First, it's very popular. We receive many more students than we can accept, which results in us having quite good students. Uh, second, uh, you were referring to the different traditions in the different European countries. Uh, the criminology that existed before the Second World War was primarily medical, but it's after, since the end of, of the Second World War, and particularly since the 60s, it's very clearly sociological. And so also in the other Nordic countries. And third, um, in relation to other countries, and maybe also in relation to the other Nordic countries, I would say that it is, which it has been characterized, that being somewhat state-centered, uh, policy-oriented. Uh, and this might be logical given the, that we have, we have a reform-oriented criminology in a reform-oriented welfare state. That is sort of, and that is not given, but I think you will find that uh, to be a fairly strong tradition in Sweden. Doing something so, about a social problem. Yeah. And um, for example, you teach at the Stockholm University. This, this to me, it looks like the like the main center for criminology because let's say almost all the um, the criminologists I know come from there, and um, and there is something in Malmo too. Eh? The chair of criminology came in Stockholm in 1964, and for a number of decades we were the only one, and I said still the. Uh, strongest one, but the University of Malmö now has a department, the only one department except for Stockholm, and it's also coming on quite strong. Uh, then there are a number of universities and university colleges that have uh, another six actually that have programs in criminology. In addition, there are four police academies that teach criminological courses. And in varying degrees, these different centers or environments uh, give programs that lead to a bachelor, to a master, and three of them that lead to a, a doctoral exam. Ah, so it's 1964 that the chair was created, eh? Yes, and in the early uh, 70s, uh, courses were started leading to a bachelor or a doctor. Uh, and, and who was the first person who had the chair in criminology? Knut Sveri uh, from Norway. He was actually a, a, a lawyer, but he came from a very fruitful and, and progressive uh, department in, in the University of Oslo. Uh, there is a tradition in the Nordic countries to have um, 
uh, persons from other Nordic countries uh, in the chairs. Eh? I've seen also in um, in Denmark, uh, they had for many years um, this Swedish professor. Uh, I can't remember. Exactly. This idea that the languages are radically different does not seem to uh, <laughs> to to be uh, corroborated by the facts. Eh? But Sweden is in the best position because most Finns speak Swedish. But uh, they have difficulties understanding Norwegian and Danish, and most Swedes will still understand Danish and Norwegian. But we meet within the uh, Nordic Council for Criminology, and the language is now English. Uh, primarily because I think the Finns felt that they were discriminating. And they are less eager now to learn Swedish, <laughs> which is still a very small language. Ah, but okay. this, this, this uh, Nordic uh, community within the Nordic Council is quite important in terms of yearly conferences, uh, scholarship to young researchers, and uh, the support of Nordic uh, working groups for different uh, topics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And can, can we say quite similar uh, topics and on similar um, aspects, which are uh, defined the way I see Nor Nordic criminology as the, the strong emphasis on social policy and on the, uh, the relation between different levels of, of oppression, poverty and, and crime uh, and prevention, especially prevention is a, a strong topic in, in Swedish um, criminology, the way I see it, I mean, from my personal experiences, is this to be generalized in, in the uh, Nordic Council or? I, I, when it comes to studying oppression, I think that it was maybe more accentuated earlier with names like Thomas Matisse and, and maybe mm. Christian. Uh, some of the new environments define themselves as uh, applied criminology and that being more sort of showing themselves to be useful uh, to governments and it, it's not a critique from my side it's uh, that is also what is demanded by the by by students they want they want jobs okay and if they can define themselves as a sort of professional criminologist and mm -hmm. they, the students also want i mean i'm old school i think i prefer that we have degrees where you take a number of other subjects in terms of science and law and humanities, but the students increasingly ask for programs in criminology. You mentioned police uh, education and the role of criminology. I think this is very unique in Europe. I mean, if I think of other countries, uh, of course, there are police uh, education educational programs in several European countries, but in most countries, they only take one year and they're very strongly related to practice. I don't think we have ever seen a criminology course in a police education in Belgium. So in, in Sweden, you have criminology as a topic or a separate program within the police uh, school. Not or... a program, but at least a course or two. Yes. Okay, so at least police officers are informed about criminology, which is very important. I mean, if you compare this to other countries, I mean... <laughs> well, well, if, it, if it's important, if it has any 
impacted, that's an open question, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but uh, there are criminologists teaching at the, and, and also those who have position at the, at the police academies. I was in the, in the police academy of Stockholm a few years ago, because you know, there is a network of librarians specialized in criminology that was created by Philip Schulze, who is the, the historical librarian of uh, Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey. Yeah. And um, they had this network in which they, when there is something missing in one country, they, they connect between each other and they used to organize uh, an annual conference for many years. And I was there at the, um, at the uh, police academy uh, in Stockholm and they had a nice library too. So they, they were paying a lot of attention to, to that. That's quite right. They had a very good library, but they also have a, had a research uh, unit in Stockholm and they had a, a share in police science, the most well-known Swedish criminologist, though he does not do uh, criminology, but he, he writes uh, detective novels and he sells uh, boxes with wine with his face on. But, but, but that, uh, that unit was closed some 20, even 20 years ago or 10 years ago. So they, but then after that, uh, th because Stockholm was the only police academy, it spread all over Sweden. So I think we have three or four okay. academies now. And, and uh, uh, there is some criminology there. And also researchers are also doing research. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you mentioned writing uh, novels because uh, you also have now at the at your department in Stockholm right. <laughs> a writer. Maybe you can mention him. <laughs> well, yes, we have, we've had a number of writers coming up from this uh, our department, but he's uh, his name is uh, Christopher Carlson. He's quite young, and he wrote his doctoral dissertation much uh, faster than anyone else. And at the same time, I published one or two books. Uh, uh, most of them translated in some ten ten foreign languages. So. Yeah, it's it's quite, uh, yeah, this tradition is, uh, is yeah, I mean, it's di very difficult to explain, but it is there, so. Uh, Not so bad, but that is a Swedish tradition, this sort of Swedish noir that is, uh, has been popular abroad. Yeah. Uh, and a Swedish uh, uh, novelist in this field have been successful internationally, several, sure. several of them. Uh, as, as we are here, just a, a question, because I realized that this uh, tradition of uh, Nordic noir novels started maybe 25 years ago. And uh, what, I, what I read was that um, I read it about Norway, but maybe it's the same for all countries, that they took this decision that you write it in Swedish and then you can find um, a publisher with, already with a document in, uh, in English, which I find really intelligent as a as a policy compared to the one used for example for example in catalonia what they want you to write in catalan but of course they don't take care of the translation into um, spanish or other languages to promote the language i think is much better this this nordic policy one one reason why it was popular outside because sweden presented itself as the sort of paradise welfare state and when that when that realistic writings in the tradition of Swedish noir appeared, they showed that there were cracks in the welfare states. There mm -hmm. were other sides, and 
and of course always on the conservative side there. But that's what we said. That's what happened when you have a strong welfare state that regulates the life of people. That's exactly what we expect. So I think there are some sort of unholy alliances in this <laughs> appreciation of Swedish noir. Uh, that is very interesting. But it's a long tradition. I mean, I know Manning, I know people who uh, um, who wrote, let's say, from the 80s or the 90s. But yeah. before that, there is a, there is a, there is also a tradition that is less well known abroad. Well, we started already in the in the late 60s and 70s. Uh, a couple oh, okay. of them, uh, well, I forgot the name now. Well, um, Martin Beck serien. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, yes, that were made into movies. You're quite right. Yes. So. Ah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I prefer British and Scottish. Also, <laughs> in the Netherlands, there's a tradition that some criminologists write crime novels. Right. Right. That's so right. I, there's a parallel. I don't know. I mean, if it's got something to do with the cracks in the welfare state, but. Also in, in the Netherlands, uh, history of criminology, you see some criminologists who were also famous writers. Uh, so this combination, maybe it's about the topic. If you're interested in crime and the institutions, but you are also interested in, yeah, or influenced by your uh, theoretical frameworks to, to write novels about it. It's another way of uh, dealing and criticizing the system in a, in a more polite way between brackets because you're writing fiction it's not reality you describe but still you try to i mean i myself was very impressed at one conference many many years ago when there was a dutch criminologist and he presented himself as an amateur criminology and, as, and a poet and he, and he was high all the time <laughs> it made quite an impression on me Uh, you, you also mentioned the Nordic Council eh, for crimi for criminology. The, I have the impression that it played a major role and it has been there for a long time also. Eh? It, it definitely has. It was uh, founded after a suggestion from Sweden in 1962 to take a leap forward. We celebrate our 60th anniversary this year. At the 50th anniversary, the Conservative Minister of Justice pulled Sweden out of the council. Oh. And the argument was that they would not spend, the department would not spend money, it's 100,000 euros, nothing, on something that was not directly relevant for policymaking. And it was actually giving a finger to academic criminology in Sweden. Wow. Uh, and that is quite interesting. It has to do somewhat with this, but the, the closeness to the state. Uh, but uh, then a few years later, uh, the uh, center-right government was replaced by a social democratic green government and we were let in again. And, and it's, uh, we have benefited very much from the, the, uh, this Nordic collaboration. And, and you could, in, in terms of comparative criminology, you could say that it's five countries that they're similar enough to be able to compare but still they give differences that you can exploit scientifically and politically. 
And we recently finished a book that you can find uh, on open access on the, uh, the development of drug policies in the Nordic countries. And it's interesting because there are differences and you can really use them for developing hypotheses and, uh, and, 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 and understanding what works and what doesn't work, work and what is most of the patients that is unnecessary. Yeah, so the council is 1962 and the chair in criminology in Stockholm is 1964. Uh, is yeah. there a reality there or just a correlation, the timing? It, it, it's, it's fairly similar to other countries, but, but it's interesting that the first two decades, or one year after the, the end of the World War II, exactly, there was a, an association created actually in the building of the parliament made up of former politicians, uh, doctors, uh, academics, who wanted to create a criminological center and with a, a share and with a Nordic uh, association and promote national statistics. And they were all inspired by science, social engineering, uh, a belief in the future, a, a human and humanistic approach, very much so. And actually, even though crime has, for a long period of time, never increased in such a speed as the two decades after the Second World War, uh, it was not a political issue. Everyone thought that that would be arranged by changes in society and by expert criminology. But then around 1968, the critique came from scientists, from prison organizations where academics were engaged, and it became a political question. So from, I would say, late 60s, and it's the same in several other countries, uh, in Europe and the United States, uh, criminology or criminal policy became uh, politicized. And then it's a clear tendency, and it has increasingly been so that uh, the politicians will, to a lesser degree, listen to criminologists as than they used to do. Ah, so it's uh, it's bad. <laughs> well, it's well, a... it, at the same time, at the same time, criminologists are quite frequent in national media, but more that's entertainment and so. But but it's quite clear, clear that the politicians are not interested any longer, uh, partly because of the special situation where Sweden since six seven years have a, a sharp increase in, in gang shootings, shootings, and other types of serious criminality and a criminality that is associated with areas which are dominated by, by immigrants. And these two issues stand very, very high and was until one week ago without break of the, of the war in Ukraine were the two most important uh, issues in Swedish policy. We are up to election in September. That was law and order and immigration and usually but many these two questions are seen as the same. So therefore we are called upon, but when and there is an extreme uh, expansion of, of, of penal law in Sweden has been so since the, the turn of the century and with an ex, ex, increasing speed, uh, but the politicians increasing, they do not any longer ask for the effects because we have told them that 
increases in punishment will not give an effect. That is not what de de decides the, the crime level. But they return to arguments in terms of general sense of justice, justice to the crime victim. And by doing so, they will define the way the research. I mean, we can say something about the effects of punishments, but we cannot say that much about justice. We can we can look into the general sense of justice, and we have done so in a very large Nordic uh, project that showed that people generally wanted to have lower death sentences than even the, the courts. Politicians were about to define this as an issue of justice search and justice and general sense of justice where they have where, where they are in command and they're outbuilding each other. Okay, so yeah, another thing that I think is interesting is that you have a, a journal published in the form of almost as, as a book, as an annual book uh, on criminology since the very early in, in the 70s already, maybe before that. Quite, quite early, yes. Uh, but that one was abolished uh, at the end of the last century. It was replaced in 1999 by the Scandinavian Journal of, of Criminology and Crime Prevention. And that in turn has been replaced by the Nordic Journal of Criminology, which is now the name. And ah. is, so there is also a, a Scandinavian uh, publication, which has been running for well, before the Second World War, but but uh, that is in Swedish, Danish, Norwegian, and English. But the Nordic journal is, of course, an international journal, and it's totally in English. Yeah. Okay. So this this uh, long series that that was also a creation related to the to the Council for uh, Criminological Research to the Nordic Council, or how how did it came? Yes, yes I think it uh, it was published by. It was published by the uh, the Nordic Council for Criminology. There was a discussion, uh, but then it was thought not to be up to date because what what counts now is uh, articles in international review journals. I think that was the reason. Yeah, but you, for example, because if you want to to look at publications, European uh, um, publications by European criminologists before, let's say, the 1990s or even uh, later, uh, they are usually published in their own languages. So you get the Dutch Journal of uh, Criminology, but you were publishing, uh, I think only the Nordic countries have this tradition of publishing already uh, in English in the 1970s. Eh? Yes, that, that, that is right, and that is an advantage with being a small country that you have to you have to learn other languages if you want to reach out. Uh, and uh, just to mention, the the Swedish school has part on grounds being criticised for not being good, but in in the different comparative research uh, comparisons between the different European countries, Sweden comes out as having the best students when it comes to English. So that's very, for a long time, that's been very strong emphasis on, on, on the English language. And I think Sweden was also very much oriented towards the United States, maybe even more so, and maybe we had the time because we had been outside the war. But, so, Yeah, because even the, the vi victim surveys, 
they were adopted quite early in the um, in the Nordic countries. Yeah, eh? that's right. That's right. Uh, so that that I, I was uh, I was uh, quite surprised to learn what was the link. You know, I, I know that Inkeri Attila played a role in not only in Finland but also at the level of of Scandinavia in general. The victim is such, I think, such different functions, but but generally, as I said, there was this, the spirit of a scientific criminology and a scientific way of doing crime prevention. So Sweden therefore was, as Sweden was, the modern country. Welfare state was almost synonymous with modernity. And I think Sweden was in a way modern. It said that American companies who wanted to test products, they would first try out them out in Sweden because if Sweden caught on, then it was modern. <laughs> Uh, ah. so, so, so there was something about really we believed in the future and we did away with the past. And there was a social democratic narrative about history. There was some dark history, but then came social democracy and the welfare state. And, and I think everything that was rational, scientific, mm -hmm. had a good and early ground in, in Sweden. And maybe we had an early start because nearly all the other European countries had much to do with after the Second World War. Can you see the early development of instruments like the Crime Victim Survey um, as a, a way of expressing the idea of social engineering, that governments wanted to know as much as they could to improve the quality of life, uh, decrease victimization, uh, decrease crime and juvenile delinquency, or am I wrong there? Well, you're asking me a question, I haven't reflected on it. I think it's quite a good question to, to, to bring up, really. One possible explanation is that it, social democracy, which has been the dominating party and has, has held power for most of the post-war period, it's interesting to go through the social democratic criminal policy programs because in the 70s, still in the 80s, they would stress the importance of solidarity with the lawbreaker. He was a he was a loser. He was someone who really wanted to be part of society, but because of personal reasons and structural reasons, he was more or less determined to become a criminal. And this changes clearly in the late 80s and even more so in the 90s, that it is not any longer solidarity with the lawbreaker, the criminal but solidarity with the victim and with the general public. And I think you have the same tendency in other countries in, in, in Europe. Uh, so then also the, the victim service would have another meaning. That is, look here, a number of people are becoming victims. And that is not to be a victim as part of a good life in, in, in the context of level of living surveys, uh, measuring work, Leisure, health, and being a victim of crime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember you wrote something with uh, with Hans von Hofer. I think about that the idea that now the criminal has no has no friends, eh? or or something like that. Right, and the way the politicians speak about the criminals, violence is similar to terrorists. The word criminal was not used, but they would say the lawbreaker before. It's a, it's a major status as compared to what 
someone who has committed a crime, as well as the extreme expansion of the crime victim in public discourse. Earlier, there was someone who had been the victim of a crime. Today, it is the major status of being a crime victim. Uh, and the Minister of Justice would refer to persons who commit, who, who make serious crimes, absolutely, as monsters. And he says we should crush the, crush the gangs. Well, maybe we should, but that is not the way a Minister of Justice spoke earlier. No way. It would be much more a neutral, uh, correct, judicial language. Uh, and, and do you think this change uh, is um, through across all parties, or this is mainly due to uh, the conservative, the conservative ones only, or did they contaminate also the the social democrats? Let's say they very much contaminated the social democrats. And I thought first the social democrats were reluctant to take this new path, but now they feel they feel very much at ease. And the present minister of justice, he said that I don't think any government in history has increased the punishment level more than I have. And his colleagues some 50 years ago in the 60s, when the penal, new penal code was introduced, he said that crime could be regulated by other means than punishment, by information, by paying damage, by, well, <laughs> it's such a change. I know that it is so in, several European language, uh, uh, countries, but I think it's, it's more marked in Sweden, uh, partly because we were so optimistic and it was so scientifically oriented in, in the first decades. And, and uh, now it has been, it, has, it, it is the issue right now. And it doesn't matter how much the social democrats expand uh, penal uh, legislation because I don't know if it's actually the rabbit and the, and the turtle, but the conservatives or the center right will immediately move one step further to the right and say, well, two years, why not three years? Three years, why not four years? Yeah. yeah what, what is, uh, what, what, yeah, what is, let's say we, we can, we should be worried because Sweden was seen as uh, leading the way. Towards a more rational way of dealing with uh, crime, and uh, you could see it. For example, ten years ago, you were close in some prisons, uh, and there was a lot of uh, interviews to criminologists about that. But now I've seen that the imprisonment rate in um, in Sweden, uh, the imprisonment rate is increasing. Uh, so you are a limit of overcrowding now. I tell you, why don't you? Tell the story about Sweden. You are very, very well informed. <laughs> <laughs> I prepare for that. I prepare for this. <laughs> no, you're, you're quite right. There is actually the very sharp increase in criminalization uh, and increasing the punishment level in the law should have led to an increase in imprisonment earlier. But uh, the reason that it's not is that actually youth crime is going down, which is not recognized. But the Correctional authorities now have planned for an increase with 50% of the prison population between 2020 and 2030. And that is an exceptional 
uh, increase in, in Sweden if you have that. It's similar to that after the Second World War, but then we thought that this is a temporary. And when we have the welfare state in place, we will have no more crime. Yeah, it doesn't look, uh, it doesn't look good. Huh? <laughs> no, and, and then of course that, that there is, there is, uh, there hasn't been really very much of, a, of an increase in Sweden since the late 60s in the prison population, but uh, crimes against properties going markedly down. Uh, in the late 60s, some 10% were in for crimes against a person, sex crimes and crimes of violence, and 2% were in for drug crimes. Today, these two categories account for two-thirds of all who are in, in prison. And they are at the same time, I would say, politically, politically constructed. When it comes to drugs, because Sweden has a very tough drug policy with very long sentences. When it comes to violence and sexual violence, yes, there is an increase in a change in the general sense of justice, but that concerns less serious crimes and sexual assaults or, or just harassment. This, uh, that there is also a change in the view of rape or in murder, that is just not true. That, that would mean that our parents would think <laughs> rape and murder would be a lesser crime than in my generation, but that is not true. So I think that therefore the prison populations are partly politically constructed through this very strong stress on drugs, sexual violence, and violence. We, we hardly had life imprisonment before, and now it's According to law, it should be at least half of all uh, sentences for murder should be life. Wow. So this is extremely interesting what you're saying because you perhaps you saw this change. I was discussing with Uberto Gatti the other day. We had a, um, I know that you're friends and that you studied together. We can discuss about this later. We we interview for the him for the podcast, yeah. but. Um, in another discussion that I had, he was uh, telling me about the change that he saw in the, in the composition of the prison populations. Yeah. Like when he started his career, it was mainly property crimes. Uh, and and is that, is this, it was the same in Sweden. The typical prisoner in the late 60s, he was a thief, to put it bluntly. 50% were in prison. And today they are in for drugs, sex crimes and violence. And among property crimes, a larger percent are in for robbery. I mean, so that, that is real, uh, no, no doubt about that. So it, se it seems to be the same. And I think this, the handbook of, of European criminology shows the same thing, that, that there is a change towards drugs, organized crime. And, uh, and then there is, of course, a, a large different, a, a large change in Europe. And it, that is that on average, one third Thirty percent, at least, of those in prison are uh, non-nationals. The number varies very much. I think Switzerland, for instance, but that is because it's difficult to become a Swiss citizen. <laughs> and I think also in one of the of the Baltic states have enormous figures, almost like Switzerland. But that is, the reason is that, and that was even before the war. Now they define all Russians as foreigners, and <laughs> because there was a very large population of foreigners before the fall of the Soviet Union. And now they define all of them, who have lived there for generations, they define them as, as, uh, as foreigners. And therefore, they are such a hard 
high percentage of foreigners in. Yeah, it's inter it's interesting what you say. I'm not sure that uh, it is because it is difficult to become a Swiss citizen, because when you look at it, for example, when um, when Martin Kirias wrote the first edition of the Handbook of Criminology, uh, I think the um, the percentage of uh, foreigners in Swiss prisons was less than one quarter. Eh? And now when we did together the fourth edition, we are at 70 percent. And yes, indeed, remember, yeah. yeah, the conditions to become a citizen, it is easier now. It is always complicated, but I don't think it's different in Switzerland than in Sweden. Ten years of residence and then you have to, of course, to have to prove that you're integrated. Okay. Um, I think it, it's it's very difficult to, to uh, of course, the, the position of Switzerland in the middle of Europe changes everything. And also the percentage of foreigners in the in the official population of Switzerland uh, is uh, 23 percent. So it's one of the countries that has the uh, probably in Europe, if you take out the microstates, is the country with the uh, highest uh, non-national population. So, but it's a very complicated issue because I remember in Sweden it was very very low 20 years ago. Right, but then of course we should, we should add to this a non-Swedish population. A large part of the Swedish population that has a, a, a first or second generation immigrants who have become Swedish citizens. And the debate is very much about this too. And particularly, it seems that there is a second generation young immigrants who are involved in the shootings, in the gang related shootings. They, they're shooting each other. It, it, it's tragic, but it, it, it really doesn't change the risk for an ethnic Swedes very much. That is quite interesting because I remember I was in these meetings of uh, Heuni where there was a Swedish representative and he was uh, studying, he was uh, looking for help on gangs from American experts, from uh, experts from the USA. So do you do you think this is really a problem nowadays, the, the issue of gangs? Well, it's, it is much de debated how much these gangs there really are. They, the president Several politicians will define it as organized crime in a sort of mafia structure. The interviews with these uh, young men, they absolutely refuse. They say that this is not the case. It's conflicts, often in relation to the cannabis or drug market. But they, they say that it's, it's very volatile. It's very, it's a changing structure. There are no real gangs. There are some, yes, definitely. But uh, it, it, it is true that uh, Sweden has taken a, a, a quite large proportion of immigrants, both those who come from to work early and those who come on asylum reasons later. And uh, some two million of the Swedish uh, population are first or second generation immigrants. And that is quite, quite high, and particularly in the Swedish context, but it was a very homogeneous population. And, when I was young, the crime by foreigners was committed by Finns. Uh -huh. <laughs> and that's Finland recovered after the Second World War. They went that, back to Finland because it was the as good to believe there. So they had no reason to go to Stockholm any longer for that. So, so, so um, but there, there, there have been immigrate, there have been integration problems and, and the segregation is quite marked now. In suburbs, mm. uh, in, in, in the large cities. 
to tell you the truth, I'm fascinated by these similarities between countries. For example, I mean, Italy and Sweden, North and South. And Uberto was telling me that when he was going to the prisons, when he started, the typical, as you said, the typical uh, inmate was a thief. And at that time, they were coming from Southern Italy. Okay. Then okay. <laughs> the situation yeah. changed. I mean, crime is about property was something that was repeated all the time in the 70s. But now we have to really think about it again. Eh? And I don't know, how did you adapt to all these changes uh, in your classes, for example? I, I, I was away from criminology for more than 10 years. And when I came back, I was surprised first to see that the, the proposition of the students has changed, as in other countries. So the majority were, were women. And as, as a result, when I sort of had kept my the, the, the liberal view on sex from 1968, <laughs> and I, I, I used that in, in, in my lecture, and, and I, I remember they looked at me and upon me as something very old. I mean, that's partly true. I am quite old, but, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, the, the issue of, of men's violence against women, and particularly uh, sexual violence, is very, very strong in Sweden. And I think that can be explained by Sweden, possibly in Europe being the country that puts the highest political stress on equality between women and men. And this has led to that Sweden has the highest uh, rape figures in Europe. Okay. Yeah. And, and the Swedish Foreign Office has quite a problem with answering this. And it is politically ex exploited by uh, Farage during the Brexit campaign, uh, Malmö, a southern city, the rape capital of the world. President Trump used it. And when the Swedish Minister of Foreign Affairs criticized a, a sentence meted out by the Supreme Court in Turkey, the day after there was an enormous sign on the Istanbul airport saying, don't go to Sweden, they have more rapes than any other country. And then an interesting piece of research from the National Council of Crime Prevention correlated this to equality between the sexes, to uh, belief in the police, and a, a survey from the European Union on attitudes to us, so called rape myths, a title. The yeah. woman really wants, but she says no, or, and it falls like the safest. And of course, there was a total uh, correlation that Sweden believed in, had believed in the, in the thief, did not believe in rape myths, and did. Uh, believe in policy between the sexes, and that also showed the actual policy. And as a result of that, we're not any longer uh, tolerated. As Sweden legislated extensively, we have, we have increased the sentence for rape or extended the legislation six, probably now seven times since the 80s. And therefore, more and more actions are defined as rape. And I mean, the internationally most known cases of one of Julian Assange. It has also been in another country. And exactly. it's probably quite different for him like that. You, you know, the, in, uh, in, I would say that in every article on comparative criminology, almost in every article, I quote this article by our friend um, and um, unfortunately disappeared, 
crime statistics as social constructs that he published in the European Journal of Criminology, in European Journal on Criminal Policy and Research in 2000, when we finished the first edition of the European Search Book. And there he goes step by step, as you have these wonderful statistics in Sweden where you can follow all the cases. And so you get the input and then the, to the output, you lose already 15% uh, of the cases and everything is recorded as, uh, as theft. And you have this rule of multiple counting that is never applied in other countries. So already in that times you had the highest uh, rates, but this uh, is everything that and you it, said plus the way in, you re in which you record. Yes, and it, it has very much continued after Hans wrote this article. And every time when there's a change in legislation, rape statistics jumps. And yeah, in it, my way, we could of course be proud of it and say, but look, this is a sign of not tolerating uh, a sexual assault, but this also yeah. goes quite far. And I just read a, a bill that was presented that the increase in the minimum sentence for rape from two to three years, and that is an extremely high minimum sentence in Sweden. And as some a critic said that, well, it costs more already to put a finger in a woman than to put a knife in her. Wow. wow. So that's, uh, that's uh, but, but this does not prevent the government from increasing it even, even further. Yeah, it's quite impressive because it's, it's mainly an artifact of how the statistics are constructed. I yes. use the case, I teach this every, every year to my students, that yes. case, yes. Not the, the the Netherlands with the attempted uh, homicides in when uh, also the United States were accusing them of having high homicide rates just because yeah. they they put everything like uh, homicide uh, even if it's clearly yeah. assault. But I didn't know that it was so uh, important yeah. in the crisis. Uh, uh, Hoffman made another uh, study where he compared uh, the four large Nordic uh, uh, countries. And I have updated uh, these figures, and Sweden, even in the, in the Nordic countries, the context has very much more rape. But then you can also see when, when Norway changes the legislation, it rape. And if you see the, the, such a diagram, it, you, you must, it's a quite clear that four so similar countries could not have such different. Because I, I, I could imagine that, I, that there is some, there would be some reasons for more sexual assault in the Nordic context and maybe in some Southern European or Middle East countries where women still are guarded more, where women are not allowed to have that very free uh, relations with men. And of course, a lot of the rapes are an effect of drinking, partying, that time. But again, this comparison between the Nordic states shows that this is not the main explanation. Yeah. It's an ex explanation of an active, actively pushing uh, rape legislation and redefined minor sexual assaults as rape. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting how the instruments uh, fashion the results. Yeah. And related also to this, but changing a little bit, you also have you also have in Sweden this very long uh, series of statistics since the 18th century. And I also tend to see a tradition to do a historical research that yes. may be due to the fact that you have this data um, 
it's if, if I if I may take the story tell the story, but I think it's quite good when we claim that we have the longest series of statistics in Sweden because the forerunner of statistics Sweden was founded in 1750. The Finns object and say that they have the longest statistic. Why? Because sure. Sweden Finland was one country and the sun rises one hour earlier in Finland. <laughs> so they have the longest <laughs> statistics. But they are second. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and that was not criminal statistics, but, but from then we have executions and uh, we have the number who are in prison. And then from the early uh, 19th century, like in other European countries, we get this more statistics, statistics more where you get criminal statistics as a separate graph of statistics. And we have yeah. long series. Uh, of course, the, the expert here was Hans von Hofer. And he, he, Produce very good uh, stuff on that, though he's not dead. But I think we still have it. It's a good type, so we'll go back. Uh, and is someone following? Because you were so kind to share with me the data from Hans, and I'm still trying to to create a, a kind of uh, international database. Yes. I'm still looking for funds for that. But uh, is someone following this series? Because there was this publication of uh, Nordic criminal statistics updated every like ten years. Yes, it, and it was updated until 2010, but then Hans, Hans died. So, and I haven't yeah. seen a new publication. So, well, I hope that the spirit remains and that some will pick up on it. But it's uh, it's now leaning more towards the, the, the present day problems, whether we like it or not. We sort of forced to engage in those, in those issues. Yeah. But I wish uh, someone could follow it up. Yeah, well, I have another question. Sorry, I'm, I'm talking too much. But um, so you mentioned Finland, who was uh, united with um, with Sweden for many, many years and then was under the rule of the um, Russian Tsar. Yes. Yeah. And so, of course, you know, you see where I'm going eh? about the, the current <laughs> situation in, in Europe. and. Uh, I think you are the right person to ask about because um, you wrote about uh, crime uh, in times of war, eh? an empirical article about uh, what happened during the, um, uh, during the wars. This is, I'm not asking you for a political statement about uh, the war in Ukraine, but mainly from, from a criminological point, point of view. Is, is there something that you would like to say? What I remember from that study, which was a, a, a Nordic study that appeared in the book in English, is that during the Falkland War, the crime went down in England. Though I do not know what happened in, in Argentine. Maybe <laughs> 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 you know, you can find out. Because that, that, that is an interesting comparison. But uh, yeah. uh, we, we did find out that crime would increase or decrease, would very much depend on the war. And if it was conducted in your own country or in the country of someone else, or if your so crime population of young men went away being soldiers in other countries. So, and then of course, in Sweden, in the Nordic countries, but it, it increased in all the countries, it was of very different types. And uh, I was embarrassed of being a Swede because there was an increase in Peter Rasmi in Norway when I went there for for some time, and I looked into statistics, there were quite small number of uh, murders. 
but in 1945, the statistic was changed with all those who were executed. And the, and the statistics jumped. I mean, it was, it was a very good illustration, even though it was terrible. So, and, and in a way, crime, the process of crime loses its, its content in times of war. A war as such means burglary, rape, assault, illegally taking a road. <laughs> there are so many, many crimes in the fact that they attacked another, another country, which is interesting for criminology because it shows that we, it, it does make sense mainly and we, in fairly stable societies where we can picture it against a stable background. But when there are cows, it, it, it doesn't really, it doesn't really make sense to count in the same way. Yeah. Except that, that was the background of this project that someone had a professor in, in Swedish professor in Denmark has said that when when crime when there is a when there is a war, crime goes down because the population is inspired by a feeling of nationality and that was wrong. <laughs> there are lots of pity wars, pity crime and particularly uh, crimes of, of uh, against property. And the black and the black market of course. But, but you, it's quite interesting because you have the data. I mean, there are the people can do speeches about what happens, but then when you look at the data, uh, it's um, it's impressive. I, I didn't know what you said about the Malvinas Falkland War, <laughs> but let me take it. of course, at that time in Argentina, it was um, a military regime, a dictator, yeah. so you cannot really trust the um, the statistics. But I didn't know it's quite um, quite interesting um, uh, what you mentioned. I also have the impression that uh, it's a. I, I read a lot about what happened uh, during the Spanish Civil War, eh? and it's yes. also a time when people take advantage for private revenge. So I think it's a. It's a, of course from if you look at it from the, yeah, you uh, have the national sentiment, maybe a hero, but also the dark side of of people can really go out yes. during the war. Well, well, absolutely. I think we, I reflected on the last time more in former Yugoslavia. Yeah. People who, have, who had, would have continued to lead a dull life, they suddenly appeared as, 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 as executioner in the most terrible way. And I think that was true in, in, in Nazi Germany as well. And then at the end of the war, you, have, you got the opposite that you took the example from the Spanish Civil War. But then you also had, of course, the knights of the long knives. Whether you would just take, well, I mean, we 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 are we, we know about the Nuremberg uh, trials, but um, most uh, Nazi corpses were probably just executed, and that did not end, end the criminal statistics. Okay, okay, yeah. Well, thank you very much for that, and uh, I got lost living in the in the. This is a unique opportunity to yeah. talk about the history of these uh, crime statistics and um, the relation with the political context. So. It's no problem to, to get lost. I mean, this is the unique opportunity. It shows also that the influence of criminological re research on, on policy is just not a one-on-one -on -one relationship because sometimes you cannot trust the data. Sometimes um, politicians don't trust the results of criminological research. This is a paradox not only seen in Sweden, but, but everywhere. But um, it surprised me when I got involved in, in Swedish criminology uh, that the distrust has become so so huge because it has always been 
such a, a welfare state and low crime rates in comparison to Central European countries. Um, well, the, the, impact of, of the, the far right, if I may, this is something which I think, which I find even more surprising because um, the far right was popular or starting to become popular in the, the 1990s, uh, even before crime was really rising. So um, there, I don't see any rational explanation for this. Is it this the fear or, of the unknown or? There two questions here. One is the relation between the number of hopefully rational and skillful criminologists and the criminal policies of the countries. And then a, a very broad generalization, I would say that you have a large group of criminologists in the English speaking countries, and they also have the highest prison population. So I don't know how you should interpret that, that correlation. Uh, my interpretation of the Swedish, the, the changing climate when it comes to criminal policy, except for what happens right now, which is serious, is that <clears throat> Sweden was the welfare state par excellence. Mm -hmm. uh, and this picture was starting to become questioned in the 80s and has increasingly been done so. And then the, the concept of the Swedish model, which concerned the Swedish labor market, an active labor market, policy and generous social influences like also in Switzerland and in, 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 in Holland. That concept was transferred to the Swedish drug policy. Mm. And, and when this first contingent of Swedish parliamentarians was to go down to Brussels when we had entered the common market in, uh, in the European market in the, in the Union in the 94, half of them said in interviews they were going to teach the Europeans, the Swedish drug policy. When there was a when there was a war in Serbia, and there was, and there was a uh, the unemployment was up about ten percent. But the, the, so, and I think it became a national project, the drug project, and that can be seen in, in studies. But also, Swedish was not that different from other countries. But that is my my national interpretation that with globalization and with important decisions moving to, to Brussels. There was less space for, for Swedish politicians to do politics. And I think such a situation fosters a dive for much moral questions. And I think that has been seen in the two partitions of the, of the English countries, but they compete about votes on prostitution, drugs, crime, abortion, legitimate, uh, she didn't born out of wedlock. That, that's the fight. And, and that is one reason that they, they haven't really found a good issue to, to fight about. And therefore, they will concentrate very much more. And, and actually, a, compared to when I grew up, that a, a general fear of the development. I think human policy very much is done from above and not from below, which is claimed by, and is not supported by surveys. They use human policy politically, but they, I, it seems in speeches that they, the politicians, they are, they are really afraid. And, and therefore, they don't any longer trust the Swedish model or, or the Swedish way of doing it. And then they say, there is some, something attacking us. And that is crimes of violence against, and, and particularly done, uh, done by those who have come as immigrants or temporarily in Sweden. The way the far right is abusing or challenging policies everywhere, the same yeah. narrative. Yes. Thank you.
you hear? And that's why it's important to, to have these sort of discussions to do comparative research, because we tend to say, well, we have a low Nordic climate because minister so-and-so or the party leader C and so. But actually, we see that the, the trends are similar mm -hmm. in European countries, and that we ought to use to utilize that for, for finding broader and more historic explanations. Even mm -hmm. though then we can also exploit smaller differences between countries and see what we come up with. I also have the impression when you look at the history of uh, European politicians, eh, you can find easily, of course, all of Palmer in uh, in Sweden, but you can find examples uh, in in many countries. I have the the impression, but maybe I'm wrong, that the um, the quality of the political debate in general has gone down. If you hear still nowadays, if you hear some of the discourses of uh, Palmer, they are quite interesting. Eh? He had a vision and he was an intellectual. Uh, but then, interestingly enough, the, if you if you should put the finger on one specific time, period in time, when the, the, there was a change in the criminal policy discourse, it is with the, the, the death of Wolf Palmer. And it has been shown also in the dissertation by my colleague, Philip Estrada, that before the lead articles were about property crimes and after, actually immediately after, it's about violence. Even though with the exception for this routine, there, there was mm -hmm. nothing, uh, uh, murder was, and, and, and manslaughter was leveling off, and there was no increase in in uh, assault, but but it, it, it seemed to have caused a general Swedish anxiety in a general situation where Sweden was not the top country in the world in terms of welfare. By disappearing and being shot, it, it, it influenced yes. the, the uh, debate, uh, as you rightly uh, pointed out, in, in, in two ways in the same direction. Ah, wow, incredible. That is, um, yeah. Yeah, well, Levan, you must guide me here. <laughs> what what are the topics that we did not? Because it, this is so interesting when we go through the. There are, so, there are so many interesting issues on the influence on policy and the specific situation of Sweden. You also we are at we are talking about policy and the relationship between policy and criminology, but we can go on on many topics. Uh, another one which makes Sweden very exceptional, or maybe the other Nordic countries as well, is this, the way uh, prostitution is dealt with. I don't know how criminologists look at this, because you have the, criminal, the criminalization of the, the, the customer between brackets, while in, in, in the Netherlands, for example, or in Belgium, it's the other way around. Um, probably because of the, the view of equality, um, the, the policy is so different, the, the attack on, on the, the persons who buy sex and the protection of the woman. This is a very special uh, case in Europe, I think. Um, it's very much so. Yeah. Yes, And in Switzerland, it's legalized prostitution. Yes. So you have three different uh, ways of dealing uh, with the same uh, issue. Huh? In, in, the, in the proposal I mentioned by the minimum sentence for rape, supposed to be increased from two to three years, there is also an increase in the punishment for buying sex. So this far, there's been fines in the sentence scale, but this is suggesting that this could go away. And you already 
merited the reason. I think this very strong stress on equality between men and women, that is what is behind. And uh, Sweden was a known, but it has been followed by the other Scandinavian countries. Mm -hmm. Not Denmark, but I think Iceland and, and Norway and Finland have both criminalized buying sex, partly in, in certain contexts. So that is scientifically, it's interesting to see what will happen here because reasonably equality between men and women will become increasingly, I mean, it's, it's an issue and, and it, it comes in other countries as well and see. But, but of course, uh, Holland and Germany have taken opposite directions and said that it's given power to women to, to allow them to do what they want. And there was a dissertation some years ago in Sweden, I think she was from Holland, and which caused, caused quite a stir because we took the, the Dutch and, and the German position. But I mean, scientifically, it's, it's interesting how so similar a country can end up with a different position. Exactly. When it came to the Social Democratic Congress in the late 90s, the party board did not want it. But the, at the end of the debate, the chairperson of the Women's Party said, should the country with the most equal, gender equal parliament allow men to buy the bodies of women? And then nobody could, nobody could raise their hand. Yes, we think so. And then it was presented not by the Minister of Justice, I think she, she refused, but by the Minister of Gender Equality. Okay. So, so I think that that is at the very center, mm -hmm. even in the Nordic countries, which all are. Uh, quite strong on gender equality, but within this context, Sweden is somewhat far. And it's interesting to see that the two parties in Swedish politics that has not pushed criminal policy, the left party from the Communist Party and the Green Party, they are very strong when it comes to uh, sexual assault and rape and violence against women in general. Then they are willing to increase uh, the punishment level. Is it effective to to have such a law? Does it really protect? Does it really? Does it protect uh, women? This is the basic question, of course. Whatever policy you adopt, it, it's such an ideological question. It's really so it can hardly be be researched. Okay. And I remember some years ago when we took this law, there were two ministers of justice or two ministers in the justice department. And one said, no, we don't have any prostitution because we have such a good law. And the other one said that it's flooding in Pradarsha <laughs> and we have more prostitution than ever. <laughs> I mean, it just shows that it, 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 it's, a, it, it's such an ideologically mm. inspired question. So it, it can, it's, it's very difficult to do research. And I think the Norwegian criminologists are taking another stand, for instance. And now you're saying something very interesting on the relationship between ideology and uh, criminological research. I mean, in the public debate, that really tries to stand for what is true, but but, but here it's it's so it's it's quite it's quite clear this this is that it is so. And therefore, also, unfortunately, I mean, the politicians will admit that that we want we want we want to make a stand, and that is an increasing. The legitimation of penal policy when we say, well, this, this will not make any change that you increase. We want to make a stand. We want to show, show what Sweden stands for. Mm. It's not only increasing the punishment level for, for rape, but it's in, to stand that we, to show that we stand up for women, we stand up for children, we stand up for Sweden. 
and we want to teach other, other countries. Mm -hmm. That is said in the brief. And to what extent does the extreme right um, abuses these uh, data on crimes against uh, women and rape and immigrants? Um, I know that this is sometimes... There, there, there is, there is a, a immigrants are overrepresented among those who are sentenced to rape. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is, this is true, but after me too, it's impossible to say that. Yeah, exactly. Partly there is a difference also in, in the sentences because it's more as a sort of tradition type of rape when a person with a foreign background are involved in. And when it comes to consent uh, rape, it's, it's a Swedes. Mm. Me too was very, very, on a very high level in Sweden. And I mean, it was groups from the opera, from the dramatic theater, from the universities, the dentists, the, the, uh, the doctors, professions where there were not many foreigners. <laughs> they said, we have been raped, we have been abused, we have been and harassed sexually. Do you see an influence on, for example, the, the rate of domestic violence after the, the Me Too? Uh... Again, it, it, it's very difficult to research. I think it's very important because the more we stress sexual assault, Mm -hmm. and not be tolerated. And the war which says that women should not be permitted to, should not accept violence in personal relationships. The more penalization will be extended, mm -hmm. and the more women will, will report it. Yeah. That's when you get, get this weird relationship between the number of rapes in Sweden, where we are world champions and these indicators stressing the rights of women. But this should, I mean, lead to a temporary increase, but stabilize after a couple of years, because the over-reporting and people are willing to report, that's probably an effect in the beginning, but then yes. it should... And, and there are some tendencies when it comes to, to assault that this is leveling, leveling off. But that, okay. this, this needs, uh, as you have given many, many, many good examples, because we should do research on this. So when you look at the, uh, the statistics in the long run, uh, rape has been increasing constantly in Sweden yes. Yes. Uh, without any, any logic behind. It's just when you when you start stabilizing, then you change the law again and it goes up, and then you change the statistics and it goes up. So um, I don't but know. I, Hans I, I, I think there, there might be a real change in that women and men are now having relations on the much in, more informal way. The idea that my mother would go out to a bar by herself, I mean, I can't even think such an idea. That, that would be impossible. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but, but the major development is the changing law and ex the expanding law. And as a result of that, more people reporting. And even when they report a, something that earlier would be a minor sexual assault, as in the son's case, the police said that this is rape. Yeah, so it's it's a situation uh, that um, yeah, the, it's go, it's increasing, increasing, increasing. And the, the point that Hans made, I, I remember, is that crime cannot go up. Uh, he used uh, to say, but uh, it can. No, but sometimes it, it it will be a problem. Yeah. It will be. But uh, is that the, the gap between reported rapes and sentence rapes is is increasing? And that creates a political problem because women's organizations mm -hmm. look here, okay, there are twice as many 
sentences today and some than some decades ago, but there are eight times as many reports. What do you know about that? And I look for insistence, but even increase or exp expand the, the legislation even further with the result that the gap will get increased. Because it, the, when you expand it and you have the consent legislation, then it becomes more difficult to prove. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's not that, like when we were done, you, 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 took, you took a biological test to see whether there was a sperm of the man and the woman. And that is not the issue now. Because in New York, yes, we had intercourse, but she, she accepted it. And so, so it's a very difficult it's, it's changed situation. But it turns out when you look at it and changing again the subject, that in many cases, uh, Sweden is a very moralistic country. Yeah? Um, and yeah. what should be done, for example, also in terms of research on alcohol. Of nationalism, secularism, and moralism. That, that's, a, that's an interesting situation. Ah, that's a good definition. So you said a mixture of? A mixture of rationalism. I mean, Benfa State was, was non-moralistic. It was the whole idea of defining social problems in terms of deter social determinism and do something about the situation of the individual through rehabilitation and the structure of society so we would not have to have that. But at the same time, as we is the most secularized uh, country in, in Europe, maybe with exception for immigrant groups. And at the same time, we have become quite moralistic. <laughs> That's a good yeah. point. Uh, my field, for instance, in, in, in drug policy, and we, I just wrote about it, it's, it's quite clear that Sweden established itself as a, the, the, the world conscious here in claiming that we were successful, which we have not been, and, and being very, very hard on drugs. Another field of research that I've seen often is uh, the role of uh, alcohol in, in crime and also in the in the analysis in the long run on homicide always this this correlation eh? yes we, we there is actually a correlation but I, I myself i have been a supporter of a restrictive alcohol policy but what is interesting that this long historic relationship from the mid 19th century it doesn't hold any longer it doesn't hold when it comes to the gang related shootings in the cold suburbs so there we have a new situation and, we, and a challenge for criminologists' work. So it, it, it does not any longer relate to total alcohol consumption in, in, in Sweden. Ah, ah, okay. So that, that's uh, an interesting... Uh... And that might be consensus on, but then we have very different way of seeing the solution. To me, it's trying to regulate drugs in another way, non-penal non way, but for the politicity to criminalize even more. Yeah, it, it's funny now that the United States are yes, leaving. Yes. <laughs> and this project that we have and with all the Nordic countries, we, we were trying to see where the, where the country was going and facing the pressure from the United States and some European countries and, and South American countries. The picture is, is, is double. It's, it's, it's not clear really what, what will happen, but there is a change in relation to some years ago, but still. And that is a book I was talking about, which you can be found on the internet uh, as open access, retrieve for entrenchment. Yeah. Uh, I think my wife eventually wants me for dinner. Okay. okay. I'm not running that often in the evening to my island where you have been. <laughs> so, so maybe we should sort of. Okay, that, that's yeah. perfect. No, we, we discuss a lot and uh, 
And I remember, uh, yeah, you have a, quite a right. If you are in Stockholm, you have quite a right to your house because we've been there with the board. We had a lovely dinner, I remember. So, um, yeah, really, thank you. We learned a lot and it was really interesting to hear you talk about some topics that um, that are seldom discussed. Huh? Maybe, maybe I can I can finish with, because we had a, a question which I think was good, just to give my view of um, progress which are the issues right now and I think on, on the one hand I think it's good that we try to deal with what is public concerns mm -hmm. uh, and, and again that is an advantage for small countries that we don't try to live our life as criminologists only in international level journals mm -hmm. in, in large countries like the United States it's been suburbs that have never been out but on the same time I'm somewhat afraid that we will be too short-sighted and too much oriented towards crime prevention and, and, and solutions that we know as criminologists really won't make very much of a difference in the end. So I hope that we can at the same time keep criminology and develop it in an academic way and mm -hmm. theory, history, and comparative research, like the European society is a example of that <laughs> okay yeah thank you henry we didn't mention that uh, you were uh, the president of the european society of criminology and um, that was really a nice time quite easy with such a secretary i didn't have to do anything <laughs> but uh, no I, rem I remember these meetings um, really it's i mean for me it has been a, a school eh? another university degree and i was thinking these days before the uh, the interview with you and all these interesting things that I discussed with you, with Hans. Uh, um, so, uh, yeah, it was really nice discussing again with you. The same for you. Thank you for following Liven and Marcelo's Criminology Podcast. This podcast is edited by Eduardo Coco from the University of Lausanne. Our theme song is Seagull's Night, Noche de Gaviotas, composed by Gustavo Cantero, arranged by Tato Germano, and played by Tato and Gustavo with the voices of Sasha Conte and Alejandro Turco Gujot. Your host are Levin Powells from Ghent University, Belgium, and Marcelo Aedi from the University of Lausanne, Switzerland. Cheers and see you soon.